0: I love planning things. Certainly Melanie can tell you that. I don't know if anybody here likes planning, but but I love planning. It's almost as good as doing the real thing. I particularly enjoy planning vacations. Uh, It's like getting to savor all the details of the trip for months and months before you actually take it. Some people are much more spontaneous in that regard and and good for them, but I just find we get a lot more satisfaction out of that that pre-planning. About 15 years ago, Melly and I were planning a, a two-week road trip through England and Scotland. And we had so much fun planning, it was almost better than the trip. We, uh, we went through guidebooks and we were highlighting and circling all the different things we wanted to see or we might want to see. Uh, and then we started making little index cards for each town or each city with, you know, here are the top sites we wanted to see. Here are the, the B&Bs we might want to stay at. And then this is a little... Maybe weird, a little over the top, but I actually laid them down on the floor, on the bedroom floor, in a rough map of England, geographically. That uh, might be over the top, but I told you, I love planning. Uh, and so that way you could figure out, okay, what's the highest priority place? What's the optimal driving route to go around? Uh, and it was great, you know, we figured that out, then we started calling the B&Bs, we made a reservation, we had a great trip. It was a great trip, the whole plan worked, with the possible exception that maybe... The last day, we were so tired from, from the plan uh, that we blasted through the British Museum in, like, what, an hour? It was it was a real tragedy. I mean, that's, like, the greatest museum in the world, right? And we, we went through it in an hour. Um, and that was great. And I think it was a testimony to good planning. So, you know, pat on the shoulder for that. But since then, we've had a couple of kids. Planning's a little bit different now. Um... We've learned that while there's still value in planning, you kind of got to hold those plans loosely because you just don't know what you're going to get on a given trip. We've learned you can only go so far before somebody gets tired or hungry or cranky. Usually that's me, but every once in a while it's one of the kids. We've learned that you can only do so many really cool cultural edifying things before you need to, you know, throw in a pool, a water park, or a... Four hour Pond Stars marathon in the middle of some great historic and cultural location. Most recently we chased some fish tacos and a fabulous art exhibition in Seattle with a visit to the coolest civic playground in the world. My opinion, anyway. The point is our plans are better now, they work better for us as a family, and because we're holding them a little more loosely, we're more flexible. We still plan, we still enjoy planning. There's a lot of value in planning. It's not the sort of random haphazard experience that my in-laws sometimes have. Uh, but we view our plans as sort of a helpful framework for, that enables spontaneity and adventure rather than just a binding itinerary that has to be followed. And I think we've all been reminded in recent weeks that our plans do need to be held loosely because we don't always know what's gonna happen And we don't always have control over every aspect of our lives or our situation. And this idea is the point where we're going to resume our series on James, uh, looking at chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. I'll put it up on the screen, but you're welcome to follow along. James writes, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. To me, this passage boils down to one simple idea. Life is short. Live and plan like a mist. According to James, failing to do so is not only unwise, it's actually evil. And this is something we're going to explore a little as we go through on why he would say this. And so we are going to explore both the living and the planning parts of that in a couple minutes. But before we do, I want to clarify a few points from the passage to make sure we have a common understanding of what he's saying and what he's talking about. In verse 13, James says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. At the time, James was addressing the wealthy merchant class those who actually had the freedom and the money to move around for business and make plans that could span a year or more. In a largely subsistence agrarian culture, that's, not, that's a luxury. These were people with the money to choose what they did or did not pursue as a line of work. And in those days, they were in a relatively small percentage of the population, influential, no doubt, and, and clearly enough that they warranted a section of his letter. But I would argue that for the most part, this describes the people here in this room today. Our culture is different, and I would argue that we are much more like these folks than we are like sort of the more regular agrarian folks in the culture. See, we may not travel for business, or maybe we do, but most of us have the freedom to relocate for work, to make plans that say, you know, I think I'd like to take my skills to a job somewhere else that seems better. And... When I get there, things are going to be good and, and prosperous for me. Most of us had some choice about the line of work we got into, and we have the choice to pursue education to change our career. Most of us save for college or retirement or vacations. Most of us make plans that last more than a year in advance. And most of us have reasonable hopes and dreams for the coming year. So I think he's really talking to us. More than that, I would wager that most of us here are planners. I mean, this is Northern Virginia. You've got to have a plan just to get to work on time. And so as Nova men and Nova women, we are constantly planning and packing our schedules full, right? I mean, our calendars are booked months in advance. I wish I had a 2016 calendar on the wall right next to 2015 because I could fill out months worth of stuff already. Then I wouldn't have to worry about forgetting it. I mean, in our house, if you just want to have dinner with us on a weekend, that's Usually six weeks out is the first opening, and we're not even the cool kids. So James is clearly talking to me, but I think he's probably talking to a lot of you as well. Now looking ahead in verse 16, he says, As it is you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Now you're probably thinking, I'm not boastfully arrogant. And I'll make clear, I don't think any of you are in the traditional American modern English sense of boastful arrogance. So I want to clarify a little bit about what he's talking about here because, again, we probably don't think of ourselves as particularly boastful or arrogant. Now, the original word in here that's translated as arrogance, and I say if you have other translations, it actually hits a little closer to the mark. I like the ESV, which is what this is, but I think that this is a challenging translation. The original word is a plural, and it sort of means the prideful things, the arrogant things. In the context, it really means that you boast in your arrogant plans. And these detailed plans for the future that don't factor in God's will, those are arrogant because they presume that we have complete control over our lives. And so when we announce those plans, whether we're announcing them to ourselves or or proclaiming them to the world, we're boasting about our control over our own fates and our own futures. And James' judgment is that all boasting like that, where you claim to have the full control over the details of your life, is evil. And I think that word should get our attention, because he's not saying it's foolish. He's not saying it's unwise. He's not saying it's unlikely to succeed, because all those things are things that could be said about plans for the future that don't factor in God's hand. He says it's evil. And we need to think about that. And then verse 17, he says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And in this verse, the phrase the right thing is a very simple word underlying it that at heart means the good. If you know the good and you don't do it, it's a sin. And it's, a, it's meant to be a direct contrast with the previous verse, right? The previous verse ends talking about the evil. Well, the contrast is the good. If you If you know with the good that you're supposed to do, which is to plan and say that your plans are based on God's will, and you fail to acknowledge that, well then you're you're in the category of sin. So kind of having set the stage a little bit of common understanding, I want to I want to begin to figure out what we can learn from this passage and how we should live in light of James's words. I'll reiterate what I said previously. Life is short. We need to live and plan like a mist. This is a lesson I learned very powerfully 17 years ago, and it has largely driven a lot of my worldview ever since. And it came as we were getting prepared to get married. I had just bought a house. I had a great job. I had a wonderful fiancé. I had a fairly new car. I had everything I needed, and I had more than enough plans to last for years. Six weeks prior to our wedding, I was involved in a very serious car accident. It destroyed my car. It it, uh, broke my ankle. I was going to be on crutches for a a wedding. This was not exactly what I had in mind when I was planning. But I was grateful to be alive under the context of the accident, so I wasn't complaining too much. Um, I thought it was going to be—I thought it was pretty bad, but it turned out to be a blessing. It was a blessing because I got to spend a lot of time at home with my parents when I would have otherwise been very busy with all my plans. It was a blessing because two weeks before we got married, my mother passed away with no warning. I'm not going to go into that in a lot of detail, but in light of it, the fact that our other car was subsequently totaled while we were away on our honeymoon was very trivial. And this sequence of events, what happened in six weeks showed me very clearly that life can change due to forces that are beyond our control and that life can end without warning. And I learned that life was indeed short and unpredictable. And while planning is necessary and valuable, and I still love to plan, you cannot only live for tomorrow because it may not come in this life or it may not look like what you expect it to look like. So life is short. Live and plan like a mist. That really is the point of today's passage, and so I'd like to spend some time drawing out what exactly it means to live like a mist and what it means to plan like one. In verse 14, James paints for us this beautiful word picture, at least it's beautiful to me because I love mist, of how our life stands in light of eternity. For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. The thing about mist is that while it seems very substantial and beautiful, and, and when you're in the middle of it, it can actually be blinding or overwhelming, it begins burning off as soon as the sun rises. Two weeks ago today, I was driving back from Louisville, and it was just I left a little before 7, and it was just this gorgeous, crisp, early fall morning. And the, the mist was on the fields and hanging over the mountains and hanging over the riverbeds, and I loved it. I loved driving on that kind of morning. Um, it reminds me of some, some great days driving up the GW Parkway with the mist over the, the uh, Potomac River as you're going through, over Georgetown. But as much as I enjoyed seeing it, I knew it was going to be gone in a matter of minutes once the sun came up. And James is reminding us that our lives are like that. That for as long as they can sometimes feel, you know, whether we're 10 or 40 or 80 or more, that it's a very short amount of time in comparison to eternity. And more importantly, there is no guarantee that our life will continue from one day to the next in this world. Like a mist, we might linger all day long, or we might be gone in a matter of minutes. And I don't say this to be discouraging. In fact, viewed properly, it should be very freeing. I have found it to be freeing to understand this because it gives us a perspective on life that lets us best use and enjoy our life in Christ and service to God. Understanding this reality that life is short gives us two clear imperatives for living our lives depending on where we stand spiritually. First, if you have not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to understand that that is a decision with eternal consequences. And you may or may not have as much time to wrestle with that decision as you'd like or as you think you have. You see, we think we have control over our lives. We think that if we eat the right foods and we exercise and we avoid wrong behaviors and we do right things that we can guarantee we have many, many good years to come. And And certainly those things are helpful and should not be discouraged, but we really have no control over that or guarantee. At all times, we are dependent on God's will for our continued health and life, whether we choose to acknowledge that fact or not. That's the essence of verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And so if there were no tomorrow for you, what would happen? Would you go to heaven? Would you go to hell? Are you not certain? If the answer is either I'm not sure, or I don't know, or hell, then I say don't put off the most important decision of your life. You don't have to understand every detail of theology perfectly. You just have to recognize... That like everyone in this room, you have sinned and fallen short of God's standard and His glory. And that's the bad news. But but then you have to believe the good news. That God loves you so much that He's not going to leave you there, stuck in your mess. He's not going to leave you there no matter how much you may think you deserve it. No matter how much you may beat yourself up over what you've done in the past. That God loves you so much, he still wants to help pull you out, even if you have trouble with continuing to fall back into sin. And that all it takes is realizing that God sent his son Jesus to live and to teach and to preach and to suffer and to die on a cross as the perfect sacrifice to pay for all our sins as only he could do. And then God raised him from the dead, and he appeared to hundreds of witnesses Witnesses who are still alive when the Gospels were written down. Witnesses who could have disputed it if it wasn't true, but who didn't, because it is true. And then, in doing this, God made it possible for all who put their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior to receive eternal life and to ultimately live forever in the presence and reward of the Lord. So that decision has to be top priority if you're not yet in relationship with Jesus Christ. So, Talk to others gathered here. Read your Bible. Seek God earnestly as you wrestle with this decision. But understand the decision determines everything for the afterlife, and delaying it could be a problem in light of the fact that life is short and unpredictable. Now, for those of us who have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, there's a different implication of this passage, a different implication of what it means to live in light of the shortness of life. And it's in verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Within the letter of James, this verse is written in such a way that it not only wraps up this small passage, it it also concludes all of chapter four. But more than that, it's written as a general principle for life. So living part of our lives, uh, part of living in light of our short life, is to accept the fact that when God calls us to do something at a particular moment, we must not delay it for a better time. We must not say, well, this, this isn't the best time for me. Because God's call is God's call, and disobedience is sin. All too often as believers, we hear about a need in the church or in the world, or we see a ministry that excites us, or we want to go on a mission trip Or we feel God leading us to talk to a friend or a coworker about Jesus or to invite a neighbor to come to church with us, but we're afraid to get involved. We're afraid to speak up. We think we need to put it off for the future. We tell ourselves we're being responsible, that we're we're waiting until the kids are older so that we can be more focused, or until we're making a little bit more money so that we can afford it and be more stable. We're waiting until we know more about the Bible so we can answer any possible argument that comes against us. We're waiting until life's a little less busy when we're retired so that we can focus on the things of God. But as we look at this passage, we have to realize we're deceiving ourselves if we are waiting for some future date to do what we're called to do today. His life is short and tomorrow may not come for us in this life or we may not be able to do the things tomorrow that we think we will. And if God's calling us to serve his kingdom now, whether it's in Lakeridge or to the ends of the earth, and whether that calling is through his voice or his word or the godly invitation of a friend, if we're supposed to do something, then putting it off until we feel more ready is a sin for us. It may not be a sin for someone else to put off that particular task, but for us, the one being called, that's a sin. It's a sin because we clearly know the right thing to do. We feel the call. We hear God's word boring into our hearts, and then we don't do it. Even if all our plans work out, and 20 years from now we are able to do the thing we're being called to do now, it was still sinful for us to deny God at the moment that he called us this is difficult for us planners, right? Because planners, we know what we're going to do six months from now. We know we're going to do a year from now. And it may not include doing a particular thing for God. Plans need to change sometimes. Because if we don't change our plans, if we hold on to them too tightly when God gets involved, usually it doesn't end well for us. We miss out on a blessing or, or we wind up in the wrong place at the wrong time. But more than that, it's sin. Now, the second dimension of living in light of our short life is to plan like a mist and sort sort of transition to that, you know, the idea that we need to plan like someone who may well disappear sooner than we expect. God has ultimate control over our plans, and we cannot change that, whether we choose to believe it or not. Everyone, even unbelievers, this is a true statement, they just refuse to acknowledge it. The merchants whom James addressed in verse 13 are choosing not to acknowledge this truth. They're, they're making plans that have five parts, parts that we know well from our planning. We can see in that simple verse, there's, there's a when, today or tomorrow. There's a where, such and such a town. There's a duration, a year, a what, to trade or do business. And then there's a, a confident expectation of the result, to make a profit. And James says this is all wrong because this elaborate multi-step plan that extends out a year or more fails on the first step. Verse 14, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. I want to emphasize, James isn't saying don't plan. Verse 15 actually tells us to plan, but to acknowledge our dependence on God's will and our continued life. It's important to understand that this construction of of if the Lord wills, we will live isn't a magic spell. We don't don't make our own elaborate plans and then preface it with, if God wills it, I'm going to do all this stuff. That's it's not about the words. It's about our attitude behind these words. Do we really view our life and our plans as being in the control of the Lord? Or do we make our plans and then say, God bless them, please. You see, God's in control of the details, large and small. And we're carrying our plans out in a fallen world that's been damaged by sin and is full of sinful people. So for any number of reasons, our plans change. And we hate to acknowledge that because it requires us to acknowledge the lack of control we have Our minds are so conditioned to filter out things we don't control that that's why it always takes us by surprise when something unexpected happens because we so desperately want to control our own fate. And I would argue that in in a fashion, that's really our original and fundamental sin as human beings. We want control. We want to make ourselves God over our lives. But our denial doesn't change the facts. We can... Deny it all we want, but we are not in control of all the details that impact our lives and our plans. When we act as if we are, it's, it's prideful, it's arrogant, it's boasting, it's evil. It represents a stubborn refusal to humble ourselves before God and just admit that he has the power of life and death over us. The theme of all of chapter 4 is really about humbling ourselves, right? We've, we've looked at it in, in the past several weeks. And In verses 1 through 10, we talked about humbling our desires and our will before God. In verses 11 and 12, we talked about humbling ourselves by not judging other believers, which is God's job. And now we're called to humble ourselves by submitting our plans to God for review and alteration at any time that He chooses. The bottom line is that we, we must not hold tightly to our plans with, with clenched fists. Because if you've ever done that and you've had a disappointment, you've had a change of plans, you know how painful that process is. Rather, we should formulate our, our plans and, and hopefully we, we actually have some consideration of prayer in that process. And then we need to hold them loosely in the palms of our hands before God. Because they could change for the better, for the worse, and it may be years before we figure out which it was. Verse 15 tells us to qualify all our plans by acknowledging God. Verse 16 says that if we don't do that, it's evil, and verse 17 tells us that if we know the good and fail to do it, it's a sin. So if we know we're supposed to submit our plans to God's will, yet we don't, then we're sinning and doing evil. And I'm pretty sure nobody here wants to be on the wrong side of that judgment. So life is short. We need to plan and live like a mist. As individuals and as a church. Again, we've seen plans change quickly. And seeing God work in ways both big and small, I have learned to appreciate that his plans are wiser than my plans. No matter how, I always think my plans are great plans, I'll tell you that. People at work are used to that. I got a great plan. But God has better plans. So as we look forward, as we earnestly seek God's will for our lives and and for our church, as we plan for the future, we need to remember to submit those plans to God's will and hold on to them loosely so we don't miss the real opportunities that God has prepared for us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that your plans are better than our plans. We thank you that we know from your word that you have plans for us. Good plans. Lord, help us to live and plan in light of the fact that life on this earth is unpredictable and uncertain. But Lord, we are so thankful that there is certainty in you through our relationship with Jesus Christ. Lord, as we face our decisions today and going forward, speak clearly to us and help us to submit all our plans in faith to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If God's been speaking to you this morning, if you realize that you haven't been living life as a mist, and you need to make a decision, I'd invite you to do so now. Whether it's to put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or to join this church, or to just quit putting off till tomorrow some service for the kingdom you're being called to today, would you do that now? As the music plays, feel free to come forward. Pastor Neal will meet you.